Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. You know, when you write a book like this, there's there's a whole set of mixed objectives uh, and 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 hopes. Um, one hopes that it will have an impact in some meaningful way that um, kind of improves the the situation in terms of work and debt, uh, given given that it seems to be so bad at the moment. Um, but um, in, 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 in realistic terms, I just want um, my main hope, I think, rather than kind of, you know, I get asked all of the time, you know, so what's the alternative? You know, where's your blue? As if I've got this kind of large rolled up sheet that I can kind of let roll to the ground and, you know, well, this is where we put the hospitals and this is where we put the, you know, I'm not qualified to come up with a blueprint for a new society. But I would like to hope that a book like this starts a conversation. Uh, put certain issues and questions back on the table um, that we might want to discuss rather than pretending um, that, n- that none of these things exist. Um, so simply getting this set of, uh, set of problems that I think so many of us are facing onto the table for discussion so that we now can begin to put it into the public domain would be, would be the main hope of this book. Capitalism creates a good deal of socio-economic crap as rules. Pollution, stress, insecurity, in-work poverty, waste, the inevitable collateral damage of profit-seeking behaviour. When the business system offloads this crap, it gets passed down to a vast chain until it can't be passed any further. Nobody wants to be at the end of this shit chain, usually reserved for the global poor, women, the natural environment and so forth. The compelling words of Peter Fleming, the Professor of Business and Society at City University of London. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to examine the nature of neo-capitalism and ask, what has it done for the average worker? Tonight, I'm joined by economist, teacher and author, Dr Peter Fleming, whose latest book, The Death of Homo Economicus, Work, Death and the Myth of Endless Accumulation, has just been published by Pluto Press, where Peter argues... Employment is today one of the leading causes of distress for a simple reason. It has become connected to everything else in life and one's fortunes are entirely dependent upon it. For those of us who are not part of the global elite or transnational criminal class, paid work is the only way to obtain money. And of course, everything is linked to the curse of cash. So what is commando capitalism? And has loneliness and marginalisation become an epidemic in neoliberal societies? So I'm uh, Professor Peter Fleming. I'm a professor at Cass Business School. I've just written a book called The Death of Homo Economicus. It's a book on the topic of work, debt and the economy that's been in a long, long recession. Um, the objective of the book was to provide a human side to all of the economic uh, statistics that we see on a regular basis in the media to get underneath those statistics and look at the human lives being affected. And um, uh, so kind of a bleak book because it's not exactly a pretty story um, what's going on, and particularly around uh, the topic of work, which has become quite regressive in terms of 
social justice issues and, and politics and so forth. Um, and I also examined debt um, and the uh, austerity measures that um, successive governments have been enacting in order to try and rectify what I call uh, an economy that is kind of uh, circling the drain. Um, you know, it's a... Uh, it feels like it's the end game, and that's a that's an economic issue, but also a cultural issue, an existential one. So I remember when I uh, first arrived in England 15 years ago from um, from Australia and before that New Zealand, and um, the the sense in the UK was one of um, optimism and um, and 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 kind of this kind of go-getter kind of uh, uh, mentality and comparing it to um, today, there's a real sense of forlornness within the, within the, within the culture. Um, and so this book is kind of a human narrative on the dark side of the economy. Um, some might call it bleak. Um, basically, I'm just trying to tell the truth, I guess, the truth behind the, 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 the numbers. Um, and that's the objective of the book. Really well done on the book, Peter. Uh, you describe it as bleak. I would describe it as a very necessary read, although you can't read this book anyway passively because um, I know that most readers will feel uh, a growing sense of rage and injustice as they progress through the book in terms of how we're all evolving. And I think, you know, when you develop an ideas on the gig economy, you see just how vulnerable workers are. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off. And it's a pretty simple question in one way, but it raises a lot of uh, psychological stakes, so to speak. Why do we work? That's a very, very good question. You know, um, when we ask people why we work, the basic and, you know, in some ways very correct answer is to live. Uh, If I didn't work, I wouldn't receive an income and I wouldn't be able to pay my bills. I wouldn't be able to uh, go to the uh, supermarket and and so forth. Um, So there is a connection with uh, with you know biological uh, self-preservation, but what I want to do in the book is kind of question that premise a little bit because I've never really agreed with the idea, especially in this day and age in rich post-industrial countries, that there is a that there's a one-to-one relationship between me doing emails all day and my biological kind of uh, organic um, uh, survival. In some cases, according to medical uh, experts, there's a negative relation. You know, it's actually hurting my body rather than um, securing its uh, maintenance, um, which is quite interesting, you know, uh, sitting as the new smoking and so forth. So I think that there is not necessarily a direct relationship between, um, between me living and my and my and my organic survival, and me doing emails. It's not like me doing emails to, uh, all day is akin to is akin to um, hunting hunting and gathering, for example. So I've wanted to show how there's a strong cultural element to the institutions and the ceremonies around employment. Now I'm not saying that um, it's all just made up, you know, and that I can just say to myself, "Look, I'm not going to work today because it's all a social construction." If you like, it's it's not. It's very real, and uh, there'd be dire consequences if I did not go into the office. Having said that, I think it's become detached from that material basis, and that there is now kind of a ritualistic element, um, or what I call in the book a theatre, a theatre of work in which display 
is a very important part of the entire edifice of employment as it has developed over the last few years. Um, and that really then kind of begs a number of questions because if it, if it isn't simply related to my biological necessity, my, my self-preservation, then why are we kind of putting in these extraordinary hours for those who have jobs? And why, do we, why don't we kind of play with the idea of restructuring the, uh, the, the, the role of employment in our lives that makes it a little bit more civilised? Um, now, um, that sounds all good on, on, on paper and theory, but uh, it's, it's funny when I talk to economists about this, you know, um, it's kind of like um, heresy. If I talk to politicians about this, and I have to a few politicians, you know, they, they ru- literally run for the exit. They run the other way because, of course, that's all about votes. You know, it's all about jobs, jobs, jobs. Not so much about the quality of the jobs or the pay or the uh, fulfillment or, or the creativity of the jobs, but just simply a job. Um, and so it's really that kind of um, what I would call an economic bias that I'm trying to tackle in this book and to question why we work. Um, you know, I've come to the conclusion that I think that we could shorten the working week shorten the working day quite drastically and still have the same amount of output and economic prosperity. Do you think it could be argued that work has uh, become a permanent state of being? Like you talk about it being kind of a ritual of sorts, but I'm just wondering, has it so entrenched ourselves in our psyche and our understanding of life that it is a state of being? Oh, I think so. I think so. You know, and I think that's been an intentional political strategy over the years with the rise of neoliberalism, and, and in particular during its crash. I think we're living in a in a post semi post neoliberal capitalist world at the moment that's trying to cling on to that axiom. But you know, one of the big uh, uh, kind of aims and objectives of neoclassical economics was to reconfigure the individual into a permanent enterprise. So in the past, um, especially after World War II, when there was a strong class kind of consciousness, you know, the working class, um, and even during in the middle class, you know, a job was considered we, something we had to do, but it was something that we did among other things. And so the, the objective of neoclassical ec- economists, particularly in the Chicago school tradition, was to reconfigure that mentality to say no, you are a permanent enterprise, um, a microcosm of a corporation, and you are individualized in that manner. Um, and therefore, you know, everything about you is can be related to economic gain or economic loss. Um, so you have human capital theory, you've got all sorts of um, human resource theory that kind of reconfigures the individual into this permanent working machine. Um, and that also has a little bit to do with the types of jobs we do because, you know, uh, my grandfather was a coal miner in, um, in Scotland and a very, very difficult, long, uh, dirty job. But it was something that you could walk away from because it was very external. You picked away at the coal face and then uh, for 12 hours and then you walked away. But today our work is not necessarily as external. It's quite intimate with who we are as a person. Um, you know, our ability to communicate with people um, and customers and clients, our ability to exude a certain personality. So the neoclassical tradition puts a lot of emphasis 
on my social capital, for example, my ability to talk to people. And the thing is that jobs are no longer something that we do among uh, one thing we do among other things. It's kind of who we are. It's tied up to our identity with the help of mobile technology and so forth. And that means that the the nine to five is very kind of blurred. You know, my private and my and my uh, work life is kind of melded and fused into one. And that means it's very difficult to turn off from. So when I go to a party, um, I have a young child now, so that's kind of rare. But when I used to go to a party, the first thing that um, the first thing that people ask you is, "What do you do?" Because that's the most important thing that defines everything about you um, and all of the other stuff is secondary. And I think that's really interesting because um, we're seeing, it peaked in the pro- peaked probably about 10 years ago, this kind of neoclassical idea of the continuous enterprise. And now we're starting, starting to see the chickens come home to roost. We're seeing the very negative costs of what it means to turn someone into a permanent worker where you know studies have shown people even even work in their sleep and um, have their mobile phone, their emails beside them all night, just in case that important email comes through. Of course, it never does. Um, and you know, stress, um, burnout, uh, family dysfunction, um, loneliness is an important one. Um, alcohol abuse, sometimes drug abuse, associated with this almost suicidal work culture, and that's really something I'm trying to kind of get to grips with and, and, and find a way out of um, in this book. It's also limiting when you think about it in terms of how, how how we are as people, in terms of how we connect. Because if your day starts and ends with work and all your relationships are focused through work, it becomes a very um, um, uh, condensed and, and tight space, doesn't it? In your introductions, um, Peter, you talk uh, about how Western capitalism has developed and you compare it to a great backwash following a tsunami. And you, you, know, you talk about the widening corporate healthscape and the elite of dark money. You present a very, very frightening picture. Some people would accuse you of being slightly hysterical and sensationalist. So I'm just wondering what you say to that. Um, well, I think we live in very extreme times. Um, it gets There are attempts on a daily basis to normalise it. You know, everything's OK. But if you look at the uh, indicators the inequality indicators, the productivity growth indicators, even the mainstream ones are all kind of redlining, if you like. And um, and I was just looking for a metaphor um, to kind of find a way to capture what I think is happening at the economic, personal and cultural level. And when the financial crisis of 2007-2008 hit, Everyone was talking about the tsunami, you know, because the imagery was very kind of, very kind of forceful, and we'd seen, you know, all of the mobile phone technology allowed us to see what devastation um, it really meant. Um, and everyone was talking about the tsunami as, you know, the wave hitting and, and destruction. Then we rebuild. And I thought, you know, I looked into the literature on tsunamis, and you know, the really big waves do have this kind of the last phase, the most damaging phase, um, if you like, is the backwash, where all of that water has to return to the sea. And I thought that really captured kind of the economic era of austerity. 
it's it's not really a war on the people. It's kind of just draining the life out of everything. Um, it's 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 like a, a beautiful oil painting being kind of rendered black and white, um, and that the life is just being kind of slowly squeezed out of our out of our being, out of our collective being, rather than anything drastic. And and that's where the real cost kind of kicks in, I think, uh, because it doesn't have headlines anymore. It's all very personalized and privatized. We live the crisis now as a very personal, private thing, and um, it, we don't have the dramatic headlines to kind of capture what we what we are all experiencing in this kind of long, long wake of the recession. So hysterical well no i'm not really an hysteric i don't think um more more trying to kind of find a, an alternative narrative to the mainstream economic view that kind of captures this existential damage that seems to have been incurred by a major group of the population who have no real vocabulary to to describe it and it doesn't doesn't hit the headlines of the papers anymore and and that's kind of that's kind of um, that kind of worked quite well in the book to set the scene uh, for the for the um, for the cases that I then examine in more detail. You argue employment has entered into an almost paradoxical phase, useless and symbolic on the one hand, universally necessary on the other, rendering it into a sort of theatre of cruelty. They're very strong words. So, are you are you saying that like the modern worker is engaging in a form of self sabotage? Is that it? Um, yeah, I'm not too sure about that. I think it's kind of, a, I would use the word sacrifice, um, which has kind of interesting kind of religious connotations because when you talk to people about the work ethic, you know, it does have all of these values associated uh, with it that has, a, has an almost ecclesiastical tone, although it's often not stated as such. Um, so I would say sacrifice is kind of the word that seems to be more more in self-sacrifice, uh, more um, opposite to what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, so the argument there is is, is um, basically this: that you know there are there are fewer jobs, so there are fewer people um, working more and more. So there is unemployment, and so. We, we mustn't forget that this is not like an economy of full employment, which is which is important for the disciplinary role to get us to to work so much for those who do have jobs, um, and that um, you know that um, there is there is there is there is an overcapacity in much of the work we do. So two or three people could do my job. Two or three people could do the per, uh, banker's job. He works fourteen hours a day. Um, and so, therefore, because it's impossible for me to go into the office at eight and be bang on productive for twelve hours straight, it's impossible. Um, there is a lot of um, there is a lot of kind of what some sociologists call empty labour involved, um, in which you know my productivity probably peaks at ten o'clock in the morning, eleven maybe, and then there's a lot of time to fill in. Um, and that time is filled in not by me just staring into space, but looking like a worker. And that display function is very, very important. The theatre of work is very, very important to the point where there's one study in the US that reveals how management consultants, you know, they expected to put in 80 hours a week, which is a grueling, a grueling work week. 
they can't do it and they can't actually be, this is the irony, they can't actually be productive and get their jobs done well if they did that because they're tired all the time. And so they have to find ways to fake the 80-hour week. So getting, setting up their, timing their emails to send at a certain time of the middle of the night when they're actually sleeping um, and various other ways of faking, faking to actually uh, look like they're putting in the grueling 80 hours a week. But on the other other side, which is the which is the kind of the paradox, if you like, there is an absolute. Even though it's ritualistic, and even though there's a strong ceremonial element, it is considered to be the absolute civic good in our society still that we have a job and that we almost sacrifice ourselves to the altar of work uh, before any other social need or relationship is entered into, um, to the point where, you know, even the unemployed are, are chastised and disciplined to look like a worker um, and to and to kind of get into the habit, if you like. And this is interesting because um, it hasn't always been like this. It's easy to see it and take it for granted as something that's normal. But if you look at that in the historical spectrum, we're living in very extreme times around the notion of work. And so one of the things I'm being, I've, I've tried to do in the book is to figure out why. Why exactly is this the case? If we look closely, and a lot of economists say this is the case as well, that we don't need to be working as much as we do. Um, and if we look at the ritualistic empty labor that happens in a lot of jobs, um, I mentioned a, a study in the book where uh, one, one, one guy didn't turn up to his work at all. and and to see if anyone would notice, and no one did because, you know, it was just one uh, uh, less employee on the office floor that was that was kind of you know negligible as a as a, as a rule in terms of their concrete output. And so I want to figure out why are we putting work um, on such a, a such a elevated pedestal and seeing it as the be all and be all and end all of every part of our fibre, every part of our being to the point where people will actually kind of work themselves to death um, in the name of it. And um, that's that's an interesting story that I try and tell. Well, let me throw you a philosophical question. So, sure. Peter, do you think we have a manic attachment to money and making money? Because, you know, you present all these interesting statistics. I think it was a YouGov poll from um, earlier in the year which showed that I think it was 37% of British workers feel that their job is both um, meaningless and lacks any form of purpose. And even another American study which shows that I think up to 38% or something around that of American workers are um, not doing the job that they were recruited to do. So you, mm-hmm. it's, it, it seems also chaotic, but so at the back of it, we must have as human beings this driving force to perform, to make money, to, you know, to have status, or we must just look at our lives as, as, as just work, 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 because it doesn't make sense on any other, on, from any other perspective. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's all part of the cash culture of neoliberal capitalism. You know, um, you know, um, I, I tell a story in the book about when I was a child, um, I won't say how many years ago, but quite a few, um, uh, at school. And the, the teacher was saying, um, you know, trying to scare us with um, the, the commodification of everything and saying, you know, even one day water 
will be commodified and you will have to pay for water, something that falls out of the sky. And we were just kind of aghast. We kind of laughed, saying that could never happen. That could never happen. It's such a common, freely accessible good. No right for, uh, right-minded society would ever make us pay for that. Um, and so it just, you know, and so now that looks naive. But it shows you the cultural shift that's occurred, that everything now is... Um, is is part of the cash economy, part of the part of the money moneyified system of commodification, um, to the point where you cannot move without paying anything. I cannot step outside of my door here in East London without paying for something. Uh, to act is to spend. To live is to spend, and 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 not because I'm particularly um, particularly inclined to shopping, but it's just a basic necessity now that you have to kind of buy into. So a kind of a transaction-based uh, culture, that's how we're all living. It all becomes dreadfully empty. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's very, very uh, transactional. It's very much based upon, you know, um, uh, the exchange of money. Um, and and that was always the plan of this particular uh, economic, political ethos. That was always the plan because if you go back to the Chicago school, they they saw money as freedom. So they were thinking, you know, the little guy needs to be able to spend um, rather than be kind of provided for by the state. You know, he needs to be able to choose. Um, she needs to be able to um, act this way or that way in the free market. So there was a lot of values based upon the idea of um Money, but as we've seen, you know the the exact opposite has has, has occurred. Um, now I cannot go to university. Now I cannot do this. Now I cannot do that because everything's being moneyified. Um, now I'm being harassed by my bank. Now I'm kind of kept up at kept up at night because I can't pay that tax bill. So rather than it being the road to freedom, it's been the exact opposite in many many cases. Um, and so, and so that story again isn't isn't told, and I wanted to tell that story. Um, but um, in that context, no wonder we're working so much, right? Because what's our main source of income? It's our, it's our, you know, I don't have any rich family to give me lots of money. Um, you know, I'm not prepared to become a criminal to get it unethically, and therefore, you know, I'm not going to kind of go through the unemployment industry, which is kind of humiliating and designed to reduce my sense of humanity to a bare minimum. I'm not willing to do that. So therefore, therefore, I enter into the paid employment sector um, because I need to get my hands on these little symbols we call money um, that allow me to get stuff. Um, no wonder employment and work is lionised to, to such a high extent and that kind of broader culture of money. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with economist, teacher and author, Dr Peter Fleming, whose latest book, The Debt of Homo Economicus, has just been published by Pluto Press. Where Peter argues... Wreckage economics is a position of the elite that has become detached from democratic accountability, protected by flanks of amoral technocrats and thugs, systematically intent on sucking the life out of the public sphere while prattling on about jobs and growth. I asked Peter about the tragic case of Isabella Purves, an elderly Scottish pensioner who lay dead in her flat for five years before she was discovered. 
I put it to Peter how this awful case exemplifies everything that has gone wrong with today's society. Yeah, sure. She was an elderly, elderly lady um, in a city in Scotland who uh, basically um, found herself alone, you know. So loneliness is an epidemic at the moment because of all of our public institutions and our public ethos, the public sphere, if you like, um, has been eroded so so substantially and, and the individual, uh, the lone individual um, kind of glorified um, um, on the opposite side of the, of the spectrum. Um, and therefore, lots of people find themselves living alone um, and and spending spending them their the, their time by themselves. And unfortunately, this um, this retired woman um, passed away in her in her flat, um, and um, which is which is kind of sad in in itself. But she wasn't really she wasn't found for 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 some years um, until. Um, after I think four or five years, um, a pipe broke in her in her flat, and and the plumbers had to kind of get in, and they found her um, mummified, basically body, um, and it sparked a lot of debate at the time about what type of society would allow an elderly woman to go to to, to pass away, and, and and for that to go unnoticed for so long. You know, what about her family networks? What about social care, um, and so forth. Um, and yeah, I thought that was kind of a very tragic case in which it captured that way in which people in our society are being rendered into these kind of capsule-like um, individuals who really are on their own. Um, they have no one to kind of call upon. The state is basically um, not there anymore as a safety net. Um, and you've really kind of got to, to make it make it on your own. Um, and even though in all of the uh, neoclassical literature, this is, is a great thing because it's individual empowerment. You know, it's um, you control your own destiny and, and 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 all of that kind of stuff. The flip side is that there are there, we feel abandoned by society, and that there is a loneliness epidemic. That is really kind of on the other side of that individualism. Um, so it's not a critique of um, individuality. So I make a distinction in the book. I think being an individual um, is great. Um, you know, I don't want to be like everyone else, and that um, you know, um, and that individuality is something is something that we should cherish. Whereas individualism is kind of like a systemic, structural uh, uh, isolation. Um, that is ironically quite conformist in many ways. Um, we're all being individuals in the same way, if you like. And um, and I thought that this case kind of captured, you know, they talked to the neighbours and and so forth, and they they and it was really quite telling, you know, that one 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 person one neighbour interviewed said, you know, things really changed in the neighbourhood when a major supermarket moved in. And I thought that's really kind of strange, you know. What's a supermarket got to do with? Um, and I won't mention the supermarket, but um, but you probably have got a good idea of which one it was. And um, and it was because everything became anonymized. So there was no longer the local butcher, or there's no longer the local baker um, that you saw on a daily basis. It was this kind of sterile, um, uh, a very kind of cold, impersonal, impersonal um, atmosphere in the town. And 
slowly, you know, the social bonds kind of disconnected. And when she did pass away, no one noticed for many years. You know, you talk about, you know, the social bonds in the town um, disintegrating. But, you know, that's not a good enough reason. You know, whether you can put the blame at urban planners, large conglomerates coming in, big supermarkets, big chemists and so on. And, you know, how we're all so removed these days in our digital economy from the human touch. But that's still not good enough. You know, it's not a good enough reason because we're all responsible for for these types of cases. I um, was also quite shocked reading about uh, Dawn Amos. She was 67, I I think, and she was from East, East, East Essex. And she was um, taking part in the Fit for Work scheme. And she had problems with um, with her um, local employment group on this. And you, you know, you talk about all the kind of the fears and anxieties people have when they're dealing with social services to hold on to whatever their sorts of credits are. Yeah, yeah. No, that was a, that, that was a, that was a sad case, but, um, but um, also quite um part of a trend that was um that was happening ha- happening here in here in um in England where you know the fit for work kind of test um basically was trying to shift people from um sickness sickness benefits um and and that type of um care, care to um into the workplace and to 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 find jobs and um, she uh, did one of these tests and was deemed fit for work. And the, ironically, the day the letter arrived at her house, she had died of the of the ailment that was um, that was afflicting her. And um, her husband, you know, was just um, kind of saying, you know, what kind of society are we living in? You know, the government has basically cut was was about to cut all of her social care funding saying that she was healthy and ready to go to work and there she was um unfortunately had passed away because of because of the ailment she had and i thought you know this is awful um in the sense that uh you know a state uh, uh, the government that is meant to be the representative of all of our interests can be so pitiless and so harsh and 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 kind of mean um in that respect but also goes to show how, again, to the, going back to that point I mentioned earlier, how uh, how important, um, how be-all and end-all um, work has become, where, you know, even a sick uh, woman who is kind of, you know, um, gravely ill is better to be seen kind of toiling in some sort of, sort of supermarket. I'd be, the mind boggles to, to see what type of work she would have been considered fit for. Uh, but I had in mind some sort of supermarket or, or maybe cleaning or something like that. And, um, you know, it's better to see the sick person in, in, the, in, 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 in employment rather than um, convalescing. Um, and then the minister who is responsible for work and pensions actually come out um, around this time and said, you know, while I firmly believe that um, having a job is a, it will cure you, um, that sick people should be working because work um, will um, cure you of your, of, your, of your illnesses and that it's better than medicine. Um, and it was, I just thought this was really, really quite incredible um, and kind of, even in this milieu, it wasn't surprising and people didn't really kind of take that much notice or take it too seriously because you expect to hear things like that from politicians. It just made me think that, 
you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you would never hear such a thing coming from a government official. Um, it would be kind of pointed out as it would be named and shamed, you know. I mean, it showed me how how much our culture had shifted in a particular direction that really kind of reduced everyone to their ability to work and anything else was not important or even chastised. You explore the, the very much the dark side of our economy and you, you know, you look at, you know, suicides in the shadow of death and especially with um, um, young students in, um, with university fees and the pressures are under and you talk about um, survival borrowers and then you highlight CEO uh, remuneration uh, where CEOs are getting, I think it's 386 times more than the living wage. That's disgusting, yeah. isn't it? It's astounding. It's astounding. Um, you know, um, it's amazing that um, they've gotten away with it, and that's partially because it's all done behind closed doors. But with the shareholder revolts, you know, that are occurring in many of these organisations, we're getting to see what the actual pay um, and 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 benefits are, and and the and and, and it's kind of just keys to the growing inequality, um, income and wealth inequality that has really.